You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Would you look at that? Somebody stepped up their podcast game and got a new introduction, a professional-sounding introduction, and... uh, cost me 45 bucks can can you believe that some guy talked into a microphone for roughly 20 seconds and got paid 45 bucks i wish i got paid that kind of money for every 20 seconds i spent talking into this microphone but i love doing it it's awesome hopefully hopefully you guys like it another thing that you noticed is i have a sponsor and exodus trail cameras came on board and they wanted to support this podcast Uh, a really awesome trail camera i've been uh, using it now for about a month and uh, these guys have a new approach to not only selling trail cameras but their trail cameras are just badass overall so before i talk any further about exodus trail cameras i want you guys to go over and re-listen or listen for the first time to the exodus podcast that I've already done. So thank you to Exodus for, I guess, believing in what I'm doing. The, these guys are awesome. Uh, they're just a, as big a whitetail freaks and nuts as uh, all of us are. So uh, there's going to be uh, some more stuff to come from them on this podcast. Now, today, something big as far as personality is concerned. We have Randy Newberg on the show, and Randy Newberg could be one of the coolest people that I've ever had the opportunity to talk to. He is a huge hunter, loves to hunt, loves to fish, just loves the outdoors in general, and is a huge advocate for the outdoors, public lands, and uh, I guess preserving the rights that we have as outdoorsmen. So I, I just... I hope you guys find this podcast as exciting as I did while talking to Randy. Um, And it's not just your typical podcast about Q&A of the outdoors and hunting. You're also going to get to know a little bit about Randy, you know, his childhood, uh, you know, his move out west, you know, even even with his wife and family and uh, how they handled the move across the nation from Minnesota to his college days to when he met his wife to his trip to Min- his trips to Montana and and so on and uh, I mean I'm gonna quit talking. Thank you guys for listening and we'll talk to you after the podcast. And on the phone with me now is Randy Newberg. How's it going today, Randy? Dan, it's going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to. Uh, to come on the podcast and, and talk a little bit about you, I guess. <laughs> well, that shouldn't take very long. At least if you want to talk about anything your listeners might find valuable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing we know about Randy Newberg is that he's got a sense of humor, right? Uh, yeah. When when you grow up as simple and as small town as I am, you, you better have a sense of humor, or if not, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
for those of for you know for those listeners who don't know who you are, why don't you uh, I guess fill us in on what you do? Yeah, well, most people who who are listening who might know me probably know me from my TV shows that we started the On Your Own Adventures TV show in 2009, and then did that for four years, and then we kind of transitioned to our current show, which is called Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg. And so most people who see me or recognize me, it's from that standpoint. Others are big followers of our Hunt and Talk forum, or they listen to our our podcast called Hunt and Talk Radio. Um, And that's kind of what uh, I guess would would be the maybe the end path. I hope it's not the end of the path, but it's the (laughs) path that that a lifetime of hunting, fishing, growing up in the woods, uh, having a passion for this stuff. It's kind of where where that life experience has led me. And in my other life, I'm a CPA. Uh, So tax season is a bit busy for me, but I've been able to leverage the fact that in the CPA world, about 80% of your work is done by April 15th. So that leaves a lot of time for hunting and fishing the rest of the rest of the year. So I, I know that uh, for you, Dan, and for for others listening, uh, we, we all want to live that life of of following our passion. And I guess I I can't tell you how blessed I feel to be able to do that. Yeah, I think that's definitely some one thing that a lot of people work towards. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I, I don't know how many people I've talked to who have given up, A, given up good jobs to go be like a construction worker out, not saying that a construction worker is a bad job, but have given up the office life to work construction so they can get November and December off of work to to go do what they love or move out west to Montana or Wyoming or Colorado to hunt what they want to hunt and then go, you know, be a garbage man for the rest of the year. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky that I married a woman who is a fishing nut. And for our honeymoon 27 years ago, we came to Montana because she wanted to go fishing. And we spent a week here and on our way home, she said, I'm moving here. You coming with? And I'm thinking, gosh, we just got married. I'm already getting all the freedom. Um, but, you know, when you talk about compromise and sacrifices to live the life you want to live, uh, when we moved here, she was making way more money than I was, and she took about a 60% pay cut when we moved here. I took about a, I don't know, 30% pay cut. But we figured it was a lot easier to take those pay cuts in your 20s than it would be your 30s, 40s, or now that we're in our 50s. You know, it would have been really hard to do that. And we did it because of just what you said. We had that that passion for living in a place that has an outdoor lifestyle that would allow us to do the things that we love to do. And I, now reflecting back on it, it was the best decision we ever made. Just because of the fact that we've been able to live a life we've wanted to. Yeah, we, we had to forego some financial benefits that definitely would have been there in a, in a different life, but I wouldn't trade it for anything at this point. What What did your wife do for a living before or during the move to Montana? Yeah, when when we were living in we were living in Nevada at the time, and she was running the office for a Fortune 500 company. She was the office manager for the corporate office. Um, she smiles because she knows it was the best job that she could have ever got. Um, and then she came here and took a job working for the state of Montana as a secretary. Uh, nothing wrong with secretaries, but, you know, back in 1989 or 90, whatever it was, she was making 40 thousand dollars a year with all kinds of benefits. And then she takes a job here at six bucks an hour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty big change. And, and so she... I was one of those lucky guys who, when we got married, she said, Randy, you just need to know that my goal in life is to be a stay-at-home mom. And if you're not good with that, we better talk about that now. And I thought I heard it wrong. And some of you are probably thinking, what a chauvinist this guy is. It's not that at all. I just, my mom had to work all the time when I was growing up. And uh, I, 
to marry someone whose passion was her family and the home, you know, building a stable home environment. And I was like, sign me up for that. <laughs> and, and that's what she did. After we moved here, I think we'd been here four years. She finally said, you know what? We're in a position where I can be the stay-at-home mom, and that's what I'm going to do. And and this is where it gets a little bit uh, – I know some people are uh, – I'm going to say this, Dan. I hope people don't take it the wrong way, but I would come home from work on Thursday night in the summer, and she would already have the coolers packed. The truck was backed up. Everything's loaded. All I had to do is hook up the walleye boat, and we were gone for three days. We would come home on Sunday night. And she'd be like, you just go get some rest. I'll take care of everything tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. And so when we went, when we had time off work to hunt and fish, we actually got to hunt and fish. And I'm sure a lot of your your listeners are thinking, yeah, my day's off. Someone's got to catch up on the laundry. Someone's got to mow the lawn. Someone's got to this. Someone's got to that. And it, it just, again, that's why I talk about how blessed I feel to have lived the life I had that. You know, just just all those situations, all those planets aligning have made it a life of hunting and fishing that's not just with me, but me and my wife and my son. I tell you what, when you uh, when you said that you would come home and she'd be ready to go on a walleye trip, depending on who you ask, you just described the perfect woman. <laughs> uh, yeah, you should see her walleye boat, yeah. And I, I, I'm saying this completely honest. This is her boat. Guys come out to my shop and they're like, man, Randy, nice boat. I'm like, I wish it was mine. <laughs> belongs to the boss over there. <laughs> if, if she doesn't get her three or four days of walleye fishing in each summer, in a week, I'm on the short list, man. I'm like, I, I, I got to cancel this appointment. I got to take my wife walleye fishing. <laughs> my my marriage hangs in the balance. So. <laughs> I know it's a terrible problem to have, and some guys are listening saying, oh, gee, Randy, we really feel sorry for you. Don't, don't feel sorry for me. So let's go all the way back to when, yep. you, when you were a kid. And... Yep. Talk to me a little bit about your childhood and how you became, or how did you grow up in the outdoors? Were your parents or your brothers, or did you, was your family revolved around the outdoors? Yeah, it. You know, I was so lucky, and, and at the time, I think we all, when we're growing up in little towns, we kind of think, "Oh, I can't wait to leave this place," and the big city has its attraction because you're young and you don't know any better, and. I grew up in a town, it was at the time I grew up, there was a little logging town up in northern Minnesota called Big Falls. Um, any of you who traveled there from Bemidji to International Falls, about 70 miles north of Bemidji, you hit a wide spot in the road, and that was Big Falls. You, know, you <laughs> crossed the Big Fork River right there. And, and it was the, uh, I mean, it, it was an upbringing in a, in a childhood life. It is was so Americana. I I look back at it now. I just shake my head. I I would spend my my days in the summer fishing down at the river. I'd spend the fall shooting grouse along the the, the trails that led from our little town to the public lands. And you know, it, it, we were so far from anything. What we did was hunt and fish and trap. And we thought everybody did that. That was that was so much our lifestyle. And when you asked how did I get into it, my dad was a fanatic whitetail hunter. That that is what my dad lived for was whitetail hunting. On my mom's side of the family, her dad was a fishing guide uh, when he was younger, uh, and he never lost that passion for fishing. And so he would take us grandkids fishing every weekend, whether it was summer, whether it was winter. We would ice fish all winter. And we'd go up to Canada, you know, we're so close to being up by Lake of the Woods and Kenora and all that ground. We spent our summers camping on beaches, fishing walleyes, smallmouth bass, pike. In the winter, we'd go fish walleyes and crappies. And, and in the interim, you just, you grew up with with a whole town of people where, you know, in the summer they fish. That's what all the guy, old boys talked about at the at the local coffee shop. And in the fall, it was, you know, it started with what back there they call partridge season. 
I guess, back in the northeast of this country. Partridge are called roof grouse, but I would have never known that. They're on up in northern Minnesota. It was partridge. Um, and then it transitioned to white-tailed deer season, and then it got into trapping. And that's pretty much what we did year-round. And uh, when I left there and went off to college, I, I was amazed that people really didn't catch their own meal or shoot their own meal or, or any of that stuff. I was like, whoa, this is a weird world. <laughs> so that, that's kind of how I got into it. And it, as you know, um, and as a lot of your listeners know, once it's part of your DNA, it, it it doesn't leave. And when I say it's part of my DNA, my grandparents on one side came from Finland at like 1914, I think, and on the other side came from Sweden uh, in 1905. And on my mom's side, they came from Norway. And even back in those days, you know, if you want to call it the homeland, they were subsistence people. They were commercial fishermen. They were trappers. They were you know, whatever it would do to provide a living off the land. And when they moved to the United States, that became a, a part of their life here that they brought with them. So when I say it's in my DNA, I don't know how far back I could go to Scandinavia and find it. Uh, I suspect that no matter how far back I went, that DNA would be filled with hunters and, and fishermen. Gotcha. So, you grew up in this small town, Minnesota. You know, you lived the outdoor life, hunting and fishing and all that stuff. When you, where did did you stay in Minnesota to go to college? No, I went, I went to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis my first year out of college or out of high school, and it was a cold, brutal winter. And I said, you know what, I'm done with this, and <laughs> I transferred to Arizona State the next year. Three sixty. Yeah, exactly. You couldn't go to a more opposite in, in a lot of respects. And so here's this young guy, you know, 19 years old, heads out to Arizona. My first year in Minnesota, I was on the dean's list in mechanical engineering. You know, everything was going good. And I got to the big town of Tempe, and I got a little tied up in the extracurricular affairs. Where <laughs> you might say, I, I tell they, the people will ask me, well, did you attend Arizona State? I said, well, I, I think technically to say attend, you really had to go to class. Yeah. I enrolled, and by the second year, they had put me on academic probation. <laughs> there, it was one of those life experiences that was very expensive, but it was a very worthwhile lesson to realize, you know what, Randy, you've really screwed up a great opportunity. It's time to hit the reset button. So I took a year off, and in the interim, my mom had moved to Reno, Nevada. So I went up to visit her, and I uh, said, hey, that's a cool place. What's going on here, mountains, outdoor stuff. So I decided I, I took a job in a sawmill there. And I did that for about three weeks and said, you know what? I'm going back to school. <laughs> I kept working at the sawmill while I was going to school. I worked the graveyard shift at the sawmill. And then I would uh, do the the whole school thing from when I got off the graveyard shift in the morning, I'd drive to class, go to class all day, then come home in the afternoon, sleep, and then go back for the graveyard shift at night. And, it didn't have to be such a bumpy road, but due to some really stupid choices at Arizona State, I I kind of hung a hard turn there and put myself down a bumpy road. But it, it all worked out in the end. Yeah, I think my entire 20s was, I don't even want to say it was a bumpy road, but <laughs> I, I think it was just cornfields. I was driving straight through cornfields. Yeah, I mean, the old saying, you know how they say, Dan, if I knew if I knew then what I know now, it could have been a lot easier. Man, I, I, all I can say is I must have felt that I owed the world a tragedy, and I was out seeking to find where that tragedy was going to happen because right. discretion and common sense were not part of Randy Newbird's life at that time. <laughs> You know, I, I just, I admit it. And I told my, you know, my son hears all these stories. And I'm like, son, you don't have to go down that path yourself. Take it from your old man and don't make some of those stupid mistakes. Right, right. <laughs> so, so, 
that's how I, I ended up migrating from Minnesota to the West. Okay. So at what point did you start getting into the Western game species? Like, for example, elk. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Nevada, I uh, I really got back into trapping and predator hunting and deer hunting. And I, I'd never hunted mule deer. And then I get to Nevada, and they've got some fantastic mule deer hunting. And so I started doing that there. And at the time, in the late 80s, Nevada had just started to reintroduce elk. So I, I didn't really get to hunt elk in Nevada. But I started getting the bugs so bad. It, it started coming back to me how much I missed it, uh, what I'd given up by by leaving a hunting culture that I, that I had in Minnesota. And I was seeking a, a place where I could get back into a lifestyle of that and and my wife and I both decided that we wanted to live in a place that was more rural. We wanted to live in a place that had those values that come with a, a more rural life. And so I, those years after, I, I stayed in Nevada three years after I graduated from college. And, and we had a lot of fun and we did a lot of outdoor things. But still, to, to go deer hunting, you had to draw a tag. There was none of this over-the-counter stuff. And yeah. I just said, you know what? As much as Nevada is a great place, it's I got to get someplace else. And Montana was on the radar screen, and it was on my wife's radar screen. And we headed out with, <laughs> with not any money and a whole bunch of student loan payments and the promise of two low-paying jobs. <laughs> So in a sixteen month in a sixteen month old kid. <laughs> so we missed a big gap there. So when yeah. when did you when did you meet your wife and was was did she come from Minnesota with you or did you meet her out west? No, she uh my wife graduated from high school in Las Vegas, Nevada. Okay. And uh she'd grown up in Pennsylvania in a small town, but her parents moved to Las Vegas when she was I think sixteen. And she hated the big city of Las Vegas. Um, we met each other. Uh, I think I was wrapping up. I had one year left in college when I met her. Um, she had just finished her business uh, school uh, and was working at a very good job. And <laughs> it's actually a funny story. One of my aunts from Minnesota had moved out there and actually was a co-worker of hers. And... I, I ran into her and she into my, you know, I talked I met my wife the first time unexpectedly and she said where she worked I said oh you must know my aunt and she thought it was a pickup line She's like, <laughs> yeah that's the worst pickup line I've ever heard that I work with your aunt so she went back to work on Monday and found out she did work with my aunt so I think then she said you know what I can trust this clean cut look in Minnesota boy. And uh, so we dated for a couple of years. Finally, got married. We uh, we eloped. We didn't invite anyone to a wedding in Nevada for twenty bucks. You can get married, and that's what we did. <laughs> no big ceremony, no anything, because we couldn't afford it anyhow. We're, we're starving college kids with nothing but student loans. So that was in let's see, we'd been dating for probably two years. So that was in nineteen eighty nine. It was yeah early fall or uh february of 89 and she's put up with me for the last 27 years How remarkable is that <laughs> takes a lot of patience sometimes oh yeah. I, yeah and i tell her i'm like i tell everybody i said you know so i tell them hey I, i'm happily married for the first and last time yeah. and they kind of look at me like what do you mean and i tell them i said I, the, the training process that my wife went through to train me properly if I had to go through that again in my 50s, someone would die. Either, <laughs> either the person being trained or the person doing the training. So there is, that's why I say the first and last time. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to tell that to my wife because I was in a relationship before I met. So I, I got out of a relationship and, my, and she thought that I hunted, she, I hunted and fished too much. So the very first serious conversation with the woman who is now my wife was, 
when it is October and November, I go hunting. If you have a problem with that, we should end this relationship right now. Well, her, her dad is an intense fisherman. So when there, when, when there's water on the lake, he's going fishing. So he, so she understood the passion behind the, you know, the, I guess what you would call the crazy bow hunter. And, uh, so she puts up with it just enough. (laughs) Well, it's kind of funny how my wife and I came to this. I don't know if you'd want to call it agreement, truce, whatever. But when we were dating just before we got married, that thing was, late in the fall, the fish in, in Nevada, it got to be pretty good fishing in the mountain areas uh, as water cooled down. And so me and my two roommates, we're packing up the weekend going fishing, and she wheels into our parking lot that morning, and she's like, where are you going? I said, oh, me and the buddies, we're going fishing for the weekend. And they gave me this look like, if you invite her, we are going to pummel you. And she, almost on cue, she says, can I come with and I looked at them and I smiled. I said, yeah, you can come with. <laughs> and they were steamed. They were like, you're going to ruin a great weekend by bringing your girlfriend with us. And so she came with. And I think that kind of built me some points there. And we always, since we've been married, we've had this arrangement where she is welcome to come hunting or fishing anytime I get invited or I go. But the deal was, for that open invitation, if she decides she didn't want to go, it didn't mean that I was going to stay home. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of times I have stayed home just because there were other obligations, or I, I felt that, you know, I'd been gone a lot, and it just didn't seem right to be gone. Um, but she always has a standing invitation uh, to come with. And if... There's been many times she's come on hunts or whatever, and I know some of the guys are like, oh, gee, Newberg, what are you doing? Right. But that's that's how it's worked for us, and it's worked really well. And I, some of my fondest hunting and fishing memories are when she's been along. You know, to watch her go through the hunting process and shoot her first grouse and shoot her first deer and her first pheasant and her first duck. And, and she taught me a lot about, and this might sound weird, but when you're a younger hunter, and I think a lot of us guys go through this in our late teens and early 20s, it's about, I got to fill a tag, I got to fill a tag, I got to this, I got to that. And she really grounded me in the, you know what, this is why I do it. And she wasn't affected by outside pressures or any perceived peer pressures. She just said, I do this for food. I do this this way, and if it doesn't work out, that's just fine with me. Um, and so I learned a lot by hunting with her. Uh, it, it really opened my eyes to how much she took from hunting, how much it meant to her to go and acquire her own food and do it in the manner that she had said as her own ethos of how it had to be done. Right. She completely disregarded any peer pressure, any any societal pressures, and so this is how I do it. And if someone doesn't like that, well, they shouldn't come hunting with me. Right. And it gave me a lot of confidence to kind of say, you know what, that's healthy. That's that is really good. That is kind of why I started hunting when I was a kid, anyhow. And it, it brought me back to to really analyzing my motives for why I do what I do when I'm out in the woods or out on the lake. That's good to have, always to have someone who can bring you back to center. Yeah. And heaven knows that Randy gets out and it reads a lot. I need someone <laughs> to get me back on the road. <laughs> so before you moved to Montana, you had a child. Yep. Yeah. Our son was born and, uh, well, so we got married in 1989. <clears throat> we came and did the whole Montana thing that summer, and we just weren't willing to take the pay cuts. Uh, so we went back to Nevada, worked 1990, um, about a year and a half after we were married. Our son was born. And then when he was about a year old, we just said, you know what, 
if we're going to have him grow up in this type of culture we want, we better do it now. Right. And so he was a little over a year old when we finally swallowed hard and took the pay cuts that were required to move to Montana. And, uh, so he's lucky. He got to grow up here. Um, he really doesn't know anything other than growing up in Montana. And he's now off getting his MBA. But uh, I, I'm hoping that his goal in life is to move back to Montana so I can spoil whatever grandchildren he might someday <laughs> decide to head up. <laughs> Do you have any other children? No, they only have the one. Well, um, cheaper that way. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, my wife was told that she probably wouldn't have any kids. Oh, so okay. when, when we ended up uh, having him, uh, it was a blessing. And we were very thankful for it. And then we ended up with three dogs. So we we kind of drew the conclusion that if you aren't able to conceive another child, you just get three dogs. And they call it even. <laughs> it's like the same thing, right? Yeah. Oh, it is. The only downside is the dogs, uh, two of them have since passed. One of them is still sitting here at my feet. And they never grow up to the point where they can feed themselves. They never grow up to the point where they can open the door and go to the bathroom by themselves. I mean, it, it becomes much more of an obligation in some respects. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it, we just, you know, it, it worked out that we had one and it was such a blessing to be able to have a child when we kind of planned on maybe that wouldn't be part of our future. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's just something that anyone who has kids, We'll cherish those days. And, and I I tell people, you know, if you've got kids right now, enjoy every minute of it doing what you can because someday they head off to college. And when they go off to college or whatever it is, they go off in the service, the military, they, they move away. And, man, it's hard to replace that hunting partner that you had, a fishing partner that you had for the prior 18 years. Right, so, right. So now you're in Montana, you got your family, yep. you're, you're living the quote unquote dream. What, mm-hmm. when did you get in and say, you know what, I am, I'm going to start mule deer hunting. I'm going to start elk hunting. I'm going to do the trap and the fishing and, and all that stuff. Was that instantaneous or, or was there kind of a, a slow increase to everything? Oh no, we hit the ground running. It was, <laughs> it was like I had to make up for lost time while I was in college or something. Yeah. I mean, if, there, if there was something with fur, fins, or feathers, we were in hot pursuit. And, you know, I look at how simple our lives were then. We shared one rifle. We shared a shotgun. We, we never fished from a boat because we couldn't afford a boat at the time. We fished from shore, you know, bobber and a worm kind of thing. And that's just fun. We had so much fun doing it. And yeah, our success wasn't nearly what it what it is today with all the gadgetry and doodads we have, but it was as simple as you could ask for. I mean I've I've got pictures of my son standing there, he's two years old. <laughs> he's standing at this little pond fishing bluegills. He's in shorts and cowboy boots and he's got a bluegill rolled right up to the end of the rock. And looking at me smiling for his picture. And I look at that still today and I'm like, you know what? That encapsulates Montana. That encapsulates what I wanted out of life in such a special way. Yeah. So simple. Something as simple as bluegills. I mean, I, I, I grew up fishing bluegills. I'd fish off any dock I had the opportunity to. And I'd love watching bluegills come and eat my worm. And to let him do the same thing and... And see those pictures now is, you know, it's it's still special today. But to your point, as quick as we got residency, we were off and running. We were hunting for food. We were fishing for fun and for food. Uh, we here in Montana uh, at that time, you could get. You know, we each got a buck tag, and you could get one to two doe tags, and we pretty much lived on medicine. That was, you know. We made that a profit-based endeavor or a money-saving endeavor. Yeah. 
and you could do it. You know, if you weren't interested in big antlers or exotic places, you know, you could drive 30 miles, park up the trailhead, pull a few to little two point or three point buck and a, a dollar or two and process it yourself. And you actually had saved a lot of money. And to us at that time, that was pretty important. Right. So were you picking up the bow at all back then? Yeah, that's, that's one of my biggest regrets. I, and I can't say a regret, right? but I grew up in a, in a rifle hunting family. Uh, my dad, you know, his, his weapon of choice was a 3030 Marlin lever action model 336 carbine. And that, that's what I thought was, you know, that's what a real hunter was when you had your 3030. Um, so I did not get into archery hunting until 1995. I bought a bow. Um, I still have that bow. <laughs> it's an old, uh, well, all those bows at that time were were nothing like they are today. And I started practicing and practicing. And I had this huge fear, not having grown up in an archery family, I, and a lot of it was teaching myself. I had this fear that somehow this era was not going to kill an animal. So from 1995 when I started until 2008 when I finally killed the bull out, I released one arrow in that 13 years. And I had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, but I just, I, I had this inner fear that, it, you know, something really bad was going to happen. Part of that was just my lack of confidence in my knowledge, lack of confidence in my ability, um, and not having grown up and seen any animal ever taken or, or seeing the, the post-mortem results of any animal taken with a bow. And it got to the point where a lot of my buddies were like, hey, Barry, I'm not even hunting elk with you anymore. They come into 30 yards and you won't even shoot. Well, <laughs> I didn't know what to tell them. So hey, I picked up a bow late in life, and, and I love bow hunting. It is so much fun, especially archery elk hunting. I, I don't know anything that compares to archery elk hunting in September. I've hunted... Uh, throughout North America, I've hunted most of the species, not all, but most. And I still have anything that gets my body trembling like a bugling bull elk, even a little raghorn bull elk standing there yelling at me from 40 or 20 or 30 yards. So um, until for some reason I, I'm not able to pull back a bow, I will be chasing elk in September with a sharp stick and a string until they put me in the ground. <laughs> Hey, that sounds like a good plan. Now, yeah. when was your very first elk with a bow or bull elk with well, a bow? No. I. Uh, and here's the, the funny part about elk hunting is I tried, and I don't know many people who hunted harder than I did trying to get their first elk. And it became almost an obsession with me. And it was my seventh season of elk hunting that I finally killed an elk. I did every dumb thing you could think of as an elk hunter. If there was a mistake to be made, I did it. And uh, finally, after my sixth season, I sat down and I said, there's got to be a way to do this, Randy. Everyone else is killing elk. What do they know that you don't know? And you'll get it. Maybe your listeners will get a kick out of this, but I went back to walleye fishing. I'd always been pretty darn good at walleye fishing. And I'm thinking to myself, now, how is it that you can be so successful hunting or fishing walleyes at pretty much any season of the year, but you can't find a bull out? So what I realized is that I understood walleye behavior based on what their needs were at certain times of the year, and that based on what their needs were, that's where I was going to find walleyes. And I really had not approached elk hunting in that same manner. I was just hoping that some new gadget or some doodad or whatever was going to give me a shortcut to success. So I went and bought all the elk books I could find. And I'm not talking about elk hunting books. I'm talking about biology and ecology and anything that was science about elk. And I spent that summer reading them, studying them. And I put together a plan, okay, 
season, rifle season opens in late October. Here's what an elk needs in late October. All right, if that's what he needs, here's the likely spot I'm going to find him. And I went down night before season, slept in my truck at the trailhead, got up well before dark, climbed up to this rock, and very first morning, shot a bull. Now, almost like he read the script. I'm like, wow, it worked. And since then, it's like, <laughs> and I don't mean this in, in a, uh, some bragging way, but it has gotten a lot easier since I, I kind of cracked the code and realized, Randy, it's not as hard as you were trying to make it. You just need to have a system and stick to it and do your homework before you go there, and you're going to have success. And so since then, I've been very, very fortunate in the number of elk that I've been able to be part of. Well, let's uh, talk. Let's it, talk about that very first elk that you shot. Tell us the story. Yeah. So I uh, I'd hunted this area a lot. Um, it's in grizzly country. Um, I'd been up there archery hunting, and I'd run into a lot of elk in the archery season. I just never, like I was explaining, I, I had this apprehension about releasing an arrow, and uh, I would see all these elk in archery season. And the big mistake that I would make is I'd go and hunt for them in a post-rut period in the same places I would see them during the peak rut. Well, you knucklehead, Randy, are you going to go fish for walleyes in July in the same place you fish for them in the spawn? No. In July, they're going to be out in the humps in 20 to 40 feet of water. In the spawning period, the ice off period, they're going to be in six to four feet of water. And so I had been hunting in the wrong place for the for the period of or you know, the seasonal period that I had my rifle tag for. And it was I wish I could tell you there was some great science. Um I hiked like I said, I hiked in there in the dark, sat on this rock that I knew of and waited and waited. I was just listening. I uh, didn't hear anything. I had this rock I gave me a chance to glass a long ways, and I, I wasn't seeing much. And it was about 10 in the morning, and the sun's starting to, it was a very warm day. The sun's starting to warm it up pretty fast. So I'm like, well, I didn't get much sleep in my truck last night, so I'm going to lean up against this rock and uh, take a little nap. And I, I don't know how long I slept, but I fell asleep really quickly. And what woke me up, I thought I heard a bugle. And I woke up, I'm like, oh, some knucklehead, some other hunter's out here, dang it. I thought I had this place to myself. And then I hear this crunch, crunch walking through the trees. So I made a cow call. And all of a sudden, this cow elk come running by me at about 10 yards. I'm like, oh, that's what it was. Well, right behind her comes a bull. Not a big bull, this little four by five. Oh, shot him with my 270. And I'm like, Holy smokes, can you believe this? I was jumping up and down, hooting and yelling, and, oh, gosh, <laughs> making quite a fool of myself because six years of, of uh, trial and error had finally come together on one beautiful October morning in the mountains of Montana. So by by this time, you were probably acclimated to, you know, the elevation and all that stuff by living out there, but... With yep. with this about to be your very first pack out of yep. an elk, did you have yep. like like a rude awakening at that point, or was it easier than you thought? <laughs> rude awakening would almost be an understatement, Dan. I walked up to that thing and I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> how big is this thing? And I I ended up quartering it and hanging it all by myself. Um, and I was wore out. I mean, I was completely wore out by the time I got done. Um, I, I realized how unprepared I was from a, a, a knowledge standpoint and also from an equipment and backpack standpoint. But I did, like they said, you know, when you're in grizzly country, hang it in the trees as high as you can and hang it in some place where you can glass it from afar before you walk in in case a bear is there. And so that night, I hauled out my tenderloins, my back strap, 
and uh, the trim me. And then the next day, uh, a bunch of family members happened to be driving through Montana on their way to Idaho for an elk hunt. And I told them, I said, you guys aren't going to believe this. I finally killed an elk. And I don't think they believed it because they'd heard my reports of close calls for so many years. Yeah. Um, but they came up and uh, helped me get it out. And I was very, very thankful for that. And, and so that kind of started me down the path of realizing, you know what, this is doable. It doesn't need to be overly complicated, but there are a few basics that you need to pay attention to from a tactic standpoint and from an equipment standpoint. And, you know, since then, let's see, what was that? That was 1997, 98. Um, I've been so fortunate to have so many elk tags and so many great hunts that I I really feel spoiled. Um, I tell people if I never shoot another bull elk in my life, I've shot more than my share. And, and that's part of what drives me today of trying to protect public lands, trying to enhance hunting opportunities is I feel like I've had my time in, in the, in the sun. And it's very important to me that people following in my footsteps, uh, get to have even better opportunities than I've been fortunate to have. Right. And, and, when was it that, you know, you're, you're not, you became, I guess, when did you realize that, okay, I'm out here, I'm, I'm, I'm living with my family, I'm hunting. Was there, was there a moment of realization for you that was like, Hey, I need to, I need to put just as much energy into conserving this, these lands and fighting for the rights of hunters and for these animals than, you know, as much energy as actually hunting? Yeah. And uh, a part of that came, there's a couple things that, that drove me to that point or brought me to that point. One, having a child um, or children, I think you your goal in life is to make sure that things are better for them than that, than it was for you. And that doesn't mean you have to give them a bunch of money or, or, you know, give them every silver spoon opportunity. There's a lot of other ways you can work towards that. And, and every day <clears throat> thinking about my son and his opportunity, that was a motivation. Uh, my dad, uh, back in Minnesota, I, my parents got divorced when I was 11 and it was not, necessarily a friendly divorce and and my dad and I didn't have that close of a relationship <clears throat> but one of the things he would do is after the hunter ed class was over in our little town he would go and find every kid there who did not have someone to take them hunting and he'd go around town and he'd round up spare rifles and you know ammo and he'd take those kids out They'd build their own deer stands over the summer. He'd take them to the rifle range. And on opening morning of deer season in Minnesota, I would have to share my dad. And one of the few times we got to spend much quality together, time together, I'd have to share him with eight other kids. And he used to frustrate me to go in. You know, at that age when you're 12, 13, you're kind of jealous. You don't understand the bigger picture. And uh, then when... When he passed away, I went back home for his funeral, and I was struck by how many of those guys came up to me and said, Randy, Dad, he had his demons with the bottle, and he had his problems, but I can tell you that if it wasn't for your dad, I would not be a hunter today. And I guess hearing that from those guys it kind of helped push the button further to say, you know what, there was a method to my dad's madness. In spite of all of his faults and his battles with alcoholism, he still wanted it better for others than it was for him. And and so those were kind of the motivations that drove me there. And, and a lot of it is right place, right time. Uh, 1995, I was at a... Uh, public forum about a big land trade going on here in Southwest Montana. And there were a bunch of hunters there, but we were kind of getting the rough ride. And I just got frustrated and I stood up and said, you know what? 
a lot of what's being proposed here is going to hurt hunting access, going to hurt hunters, blah, 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 blah. And I went on, you know, sometimes you get mad and you just start rambling and you don't really even know what you're saying. Mm -hmm. There's a U.S. senator standing there, and I'm giving him the business. I didn't, you know, it's like, Randy, you better shut up. And when I was done, the room of people who were trying to advocate for their interest, which would have been against the interest of hunters, was just dead quiet. And like 10 hunters stood up and started hooting and yelling and, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> and I, my, my cheeks are red. I am just like on fire. I'm so pissed about what was being proposed. And, and afterwards, the senator and his staff came up and talked to me and said, you know, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for the hunters to show up and, and engage in this. And so the end outcome of that, myself and a few other hunters were invited to participate in the planning of how this big land swap was going to happen. And as a result, hunters ended up consolidating hundreds of thousands of acres of hunting access here that otherwise, I don't know if, if it would have turned out that good for hunters. And I'm not saying that's because of me. It was because of a lot of other hunters getting involved and getting engaged also. But that was kind of my first uh, opportunity of jumping in the world of politics and, and not because I had that by design. I'm just not very good at sitting there and being told to stand in line. Right. And I felt that this other group over there that was controlling the conversation and directing this plan was expecting hunters to be well-behaved and just stand in line and we'll tell you what's best for you. Well, that doesn't fly very good with me. Uh, <laughs> so that was the first of many political engagements I ended up being a part of. And I think in the hunting world, we, uh, we're kind of loners. We don't, you know, we don't have much use for politics and, and all that process. And I was fortunate in college. Uh, I took a year of business and professional speaking, probably the most valuable class I took in college was business <laughs> and professional speaking. Um, and it allowed me to be comfortable to get up and give an articulate position in front of large crowds or in front of decision makers. And so by default, the hunters here are like, we'll send Newberg up there. Let's send Newberg to the Capitol building. Let's let's nominate Newberg to sit on that, that panel. Um, and so it all kind of went back to that, that one big blow-up where I wasn't willing to sit there and listen to that stuff anymore. And, and from that, I, you know, the political powers, if you want to call it that, in Montana uh, kind of came to our little rod and gun club that we have here in Bozeman. And we had way more sway than we should have had in a lot of instances, but mostly because we were able to articulate a good argument. We stayed engaged, and myself and probably five or six others in that rock and gun club, we became political activists, for lack of a better term. And uh, that, that kind of set me down this path of being this loudmouth for public land and uh, the guy who's not going to just shut up and take someone's medicine if I don't think it's good for the future of hunting. Right. Makes a lot of sense. And I know there's a lot of us out there who are, you know, we're glad that you stood up when you stood up and got pissed when you got pissed because uh, there needs to be more people like you out there. So, Well, and, and my, my wife, when she's at these things, Dan, she knows I come from a logging family. My dad was a logger. All my uncles were loggers. My brother's still a logger. And profanity is kind of an art form in the logging world. And <laughs> she can see when I'm getting to that point, like, uh-oh, he's reaching the point where the words are going to start coming. This is not going to be pretty. And uh, so there's, there's times when I, I still have that spirit and passion for it. But I, I look over at my wife and she reminds me, now, Randy, remember, the whole world doesn't communicate like you do. And uh, I try to be a little more articulate and a little less uh, colorful in those instances. <laughs> well, um, 
I know as far as where you know the conservation and stuff like that, I'm I'm going to direct people to you know to the Wired to Hunt podcast for you know because you know we already covered a lot of that in the Wired to Hunt podcast. But I want to talk to you a little bit about your very first bow kill on an elk. Yep. I want you to tell me that story. Oh gosh. You know, it's it's there for the whole world to see out on our YouTube channel. You know, if you go to On Your Own Adventures, season one, there's a New Mexico elk hunt. And uh, I, I now I watch that, and I realize just how lucky I was that that bull even died. Um, so we spent six days in the Gila National Forest of New Mexico, and I had some some really good opportunities, but again, I had this hesitancy and hesitancy. And I had a friend, Jerry Pritchard, who was calling for me. We had two camera guys with us. And, and at the time, I didn't even expect this to be a TV show. Um, I got talked into it by another guy to go and let his camera crew follow me around. So that's really what I was doing. And the last evening, after so many close encounters, we went and sat at this water hole. I had a camera down to my left and a camera up to my right. Uh, and here comes this bull. I think there were three cows and two calves or two cows and three calves. I can't remember. And he came in and I came to full draw. And just as I came to full draw, he turned and gave me a bad angle. And I'm holding and I'm holding and I'm holding and I'm like, turn, please turn. Because I think he was 36 yards, something like that. And he lifts his head up and I'm thinking this is my chance. And by the, and I, I got to admit, between being at full draw for that long and the excitement, my pins are moving all over. It's, and as he turns... Uh, or as he lifts his head up, he starts walking out of the water. And I'm thinking, okay, when he stops right at the edge of the water, I've made that shot before. That's 40 yards. No problem. And he stops for a second. I hit the release. And somewhere between me hitting the release and the arrow getting there, he starts walking again. And what I'd hoped would be a, a good quartering away shot, I end up hitting him right in front of the hind leg, right in the stomach area. Uh, the arrow completely disappears through his stomach or out of sight. And instantly I can tell this is a terrible shot. I'm like, this confirms all of your fears of the last 10 years, Randy. You've screwed it up. You've this, you've that. And I'm just ready to beat myself up. My buddy Jerry is sitting above watching all of this, and the elk goes over the little berm of, that has created this water tank, uh, and he starts staggering, acts like he's going to bed down. Um, so we give him a little bit of time, and we go and we look for blood, and to my surprise, instantly there is a lot of blood. And I'm like, well, maybe I lucked out and I hit you know, liver, artery, something that that uh, was, if, if I kill him, it's not deserved based on the quality of the shot. And the, <clears throat> the bull heads up this ridge. It's now starting to get dark. We're following the blood with flashlights, but we're following a pretty darn good blood trail. He gets to the top of the ridge. We can see blood where he is stood, and then he drops down into this bottom that is really, really thick brush, and now it's dark. And I'm left with that dilemma of, do you follow this bull and possibly push him because you know he's not hit as good as you'd like? Or do I go back to camp and see if in some way, shape, or form he'll stiffen up overnight and I can get another airplane in, in the morning. And so we made the decision to go back to camp. Uh, before going back to camp, I punched my tag because in my mind, 
you know, if I hit an animal like that that I know is going to die, whether I'm going to recover it or not, that, that tag's getting punched. So before we headed back to camp that night, I punched my tag, even though we had two days left. And I told the crew that, you know, tomorrow and the next day and the next day, whatever it's going to take, we're going to recover this bull and at least do everything we can. So the next morning, we picked up the blood trail and followed him. And as expected, he went down into this really thick brush. Um, and we the blood, he, he had bedded there. And there was a, a big pool of blood. And then when he got up, I suspect that morning, the blood trail pretty much was gone. All we could follow was there was a scuff mark as if this one leg he was not able to use very well. So we followed stuff mark after stuff mark for a long ways. Um, we picked up the trail probably at, I'd say, 7 in the morning. About 11 o'clock that morning, I we'd lost it. I had pretty much given up on the idea. I was back circling, going back as, as you do, you know, when you find your last stuff mark or your last piece of blood. I went back, and I was just on my hands and knees. And in my mind, I'd pretty much resolved that my worst fear had come true. And one of the camera guys walked over this little rock pile to take a leak. <laughs> and I hear guys yelling, here he is, here he is. <laughs> and and uh, I thought they were jerking my chain because they could see I was very distraught. I I just, man, I felt terrible. I, as any hunter, the last thing you want to do is put an animal through that. And I felt like I had failed. Uh, I had I'd not held up my end of the deal. And we walk over there, and there he was. He was laying there. And uh, he was still member. He he did not even have rigor mortis yet. So he, he had obviously expired very, very shortly uh, from when the camera guy had found him. And did the biopsy, you know, postmortem look, and it was as bad of a shot as I'd expected. Uh, and uh, it was just good fortune that we were able to continue to follow him with that stuff, Mark, that he, he drug along. And I'm not proud of that shot. Uh, I, you know, I, all that I look at that hunt now and I look at how I. I have this independent streak of wanting to teach myself everything, and that was stupid. Uh, there was so much I didn't know about archery, and it's probably a good thing I didn't take any shots before then. Uh, since then, you know, I've kind of swallowed my pride, and I'm I'm always trying to gain more information from other archers, Uh whether it's about equipment, shot selection, animal behaviors, you know, shoot better shooting form, you name it. Uh, and since then, I've been very lucky. Uh, I've, I've had some great archery hunts and I've shot more bulls and deer and antelope and other stuff. But that uh, that first that was the first animal I ever took with a bow, and it it was the biggest roller coaster and one of the most memorable hunts for a lot of reasons, some good, some bad. Uh, probably one of the most memorable hunts of my life. And, and even when I'm done hunting, I'm sure that will still be towards the top of the list. Now, I got one more question because we're coming up here on an yeah. hour. And sure. I, I got one more question for you. And you might have to be very careful on how you answer this question. <laughs> okay. But... Is the walleye fishing better in Minnesota or Montana? Oh, that's not even uh, <laughs> How did I say this? I, I just read in the Star Tribune that Malax is going to catch and release only walleye fishing for 2016, uh, for whatever the reasons might be. In Montana, fishing pressure is if there are five boats on the lake that day. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about, like, big reservoirs. Uh, the average fish that I catch here is way bigger than the average fish I would catch in Minnesota. It's, it, it really is, how do I say this? 
I, I think about our family. We would all go to Upper Red Lake for opening weekend of walleye season. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's been to Upper Red Lake knows what the opener is like in Minnesota. It's crazy. I would see more people at the boat ramp opening morning at Red Lake than I will see in an entire season of walleye fishing in Montana. It's just that much different. And the quality of walleye fishing in Montana, I don't know how many fish my wife and I have caught over 30 inches. Uh, she, she lays claim that she has caught the biggest ones, and I guess we'll, we'll let her say that. I'll argue <laughs> um, The average size of the fish here are bigger. Uh, I don't use live bait anymore. I'm strictly a crankbait guy. It doesn't matter what time of year it is. Uh, reservoirs are so much easier to catch walleyes than, than in natural lakes. Uh, low pressured walleyes are so much easier to catch than than highly pressured walleyes like in the Midwest. I, and now all my Montana walleye buddies, if they hear this podcast, they're going to come over here and put knots on my head for saying <laughs> that. Then, but <laughs> let's just say that if you come to Montana and fish walleyes in Fort Pack or one of our other well-known reservoirs, you're probably going to have one of the funnest walleye trips you've ever had. Nice. Uh, I'll just I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> nice. Well, that's a good fair answer, so you don't lose any friends in Montana. Yeah. <laughs> well, but that's good. I still love to go when I go back home every summer. My brother and I try to go to Red Lake or or somewhere else. Or, you know, just if nothing else, for the tradition of what our family has always done, and I miss that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, Randy, I really appreciate taking you taking time out of your day to chat with me and and let the listeners hear a little bit about your story and where you came from and where you are today and uh, i really appreciate that and thanks so much for having me and uh i i appreciate all that that you are doing too to you know these platforms that you are a part of whether it's the the uh nine finger chronicles podcast or the wired hunt podcast those those types of platforms are making a difference out there. And I just, I want to thank you guys so much for doing that stuff. That brings us to the end of this week and, uh, this Hunter profile podcast with Randy Newberg. First and foremost, to all the listeners, thank you guys very much. I appreciate you guys tuning in. The support that I'm getting is overwhelming, and I absolutely love it. Second, I want to thank Randy for coming on the show and uh, just chatting with me. What an awesome guy. And like I told uh, Mark Kenyon, the, uh, if you, and if for some reason you haven't even heard of the Wired to Hunt podcast, you need to go over and check that out. But I was talking to Mark Kenyon. Um, he's the host of that show. And I said, if I could have one beer with anybody, it would be Randy Newberg. He just seems like an awesome guy. And I think this prop podcast proved that. Last but definitely not least, I want to thank Exodus Trail Cameras for coming on and uh, supporting the podcast and supporting what I do. Thank you very much and uh, look for some more exciting things to come from them. If you guys haven't already subscribed to Stitcher or iTunes or are following me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, go ahead and do that. You know, go to iTunes and leave a review. Let me know what you think of this podcast and uh, yeah, hopefully I can just keep going up and uh, setting new standards as far as this podcast is concerned. Again, I love doing it. And uh, the most important thing of all is when you're in the tree stand to wear your damn safety harness. <laughs>